นโมตัสสะบุโกอะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุโกอะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุโกอะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังฆังนัมมะสังNo, your Dhammapada will uh, be familiar with the uh, the verse right next to it, which says, uh, "What in the midst of those who are angry, uh, to dwell free from anger, is happiness indeed." So, when we lift this up and we hear this, and then, how does it strike us? What does it mean? What does what comes through for us if we read this? Hear this teaching from the Buddha. What I see in it, or what uh, what speaks to me, is that uh, the Buddha is saying that you are not defined by what's going on around you. That if uh, we practice rightly, then we do not have to be intimidated. By the circumstance that we find ourselves in. In other words, if we practice right, we can be our own person, independent, independent of what's going on around us. And that, to me, that's that's a real message of hope, wholesome hope. Like there's, there's uh, sometimes when you're doing battle with the, with the defilements, with the obstructions, with the limitations of your own mind and the greed, aversion, and delusion. And you just think, oh, this is, you know, when's it going to end? Or you, you know, the difficulties of the environment, the situation you find yourself in, or the world, the way the world is, and you know, it's hopeless. This is just. Well, if we if we're looking out there, mm-hmm. we're looking out there uh, for our reassurance. Uh, then the Buddha is suggesting we're looking in the wrong place. So the the journey of what uh, is called dhammasakacha or inquiry or questioning, investigation of reality of dhamma is an inner journey. Yeah. Now sometimes the Buddhists we get uh, we get criticised for for you know, thinking that all that's involved in spiritual life is to get peaceful and sit there and watch your mind and you know, gaze at your navel and and pretend everything is wonderful. And of course, if that is all we were doing, then that criticism would be warranted. And but that is, of course, not the Buddha's path. You know, the, the Buddha did speak very uh, clearly, very explicitly about yes, benefiting ourselves um, 
by bringing the attention to it, by cultivating the four foundations of mindfulness, by really establishing a foundation for mindfulness in our lives. And, and as we benefit ourselves in so doing, we benefit others. Yeah. But he also said that sometimes we need to put the emphasis on the other side, you know, to really dwell on the four Brahma Viharas, uh, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy and equanimity, to really make much of these qualities of heart, to really cultivate these, really dwelling on thoughts of may beings be well, to really look at the world, to see other people, to you know, wish beings be free from suffering, to let that, that wish become big in our hearts, so loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy and equanimity. And in benefiting others, in wishing well for others, and in, in doing things to benefit others, we also benefit ourselves. And so there's, of course, uh, the aim of our practice is to find a balance. But however, there does need to be an emphasis on the inner work. This is if uh, you know, sort of all of us realise, no matter how fortunate our circumstance is, if the heart is disturbed, then it really doesn't matter how nice the environment we're living in is, how nice our home is, or how wonderful our clothes are, or how many holidays we've been on. So it's the, uh, it's the state of the heart that's primary. And so it is appropriate that, uh, you know, in listening to these teachings, you know, the Buddha said, well, in the midst of those who are greedy, to dwell free from greed is happiness indeed. This is where the happiness lies by learning to know our own hearts, by getting to know our own hearts. Maybe the emphasis in the world is to, to know about things. Mm. Science is wonderful. Uh, there's absolutely no conflict between scientific pursuit and Buddhist teachings. But if all we're doing is, is understanding about things, we don't understand the consciousness that is knowing, then we become and we feel very obstructed. So getting to know, how does it, what does it mean? Or how, how can we be our own person? How can we be free from intimidation? You know, if we're surrounded by people who are being greedy, can we choose to not be greedy? Or if we're surrounded by angry people, like the mob consciousness, I think probably all of us have seen situations where the mob consciousness takes over and it's quite frightening, I know as a, as a young man I used to find this very threatening and I think I've spoken before about how I was brought up in a uh, very strict religious teaching that uh, wasn't, didn't necessarily encourage mindfulness and wise reflection. Um, quite the opposite, it encouraged belief only, unquestioning belief. And uh, we were, I used to get sent to these uh, Christian youth camps where the thing to do was to uh, say you were saved and you would hold a flaming torch, this torch with felt on the end, tied on with wire and dipped in methylated spirits, and you'd hold this torch up and, and you would confess that you have been saved from being a sinner and you'd sing these songs about how wonderful it is to have been saved. And uh, actually I wasn't saved, um, but I always said I was. And I used to lie through my teeth about it because basically if I didn't say I was saved, well, I wouldn't have any friends because, you know... You know, to have friends, you had to all, you know, be the same. And, and I didn't feel good about that. I thought, wow, I could, you know, I could lie about something really important. And, and then I used to, used to worry me. I was like, well, what happens if I was in Nazi Germany during World War II? You know, would I have, you know, really forgotten all my, 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 
my personal virtues and just gone along with something really atrocious. And so this was a, a kind of a horrible, haunting fear that I had uh, during my uh, adolescent years. And, but then coming across the Buddha's teaching, the Buddha pointed out that yeah, this is the case that we can, if we don't know our true hearts, if we don't, if we're not our own person, if we're not really accurately seeing the nature of things, then we will be intimidated. It's like there's actually no alternative. And so appreciating this, well, then we're inspired to work, to work hard. And, uh, and a lot of the work uh, means uh, actually it's, uh, it's not necessarily easy. Uh, so, as I mentioned before, the, the path of Dhammasakacha or, or inquiry into reality, questioning about reality. This is a very different path from the spiritual traditions of the culture we're used to. Most of, of what uh, goes on in the name of religion in this culture would be characterized in the Indian language as bhakti practice, where you worship the divine, you adore the divine, and, and the theory behind that is if you worship long enough with the right attitude, you become one with the divine. Now, I'm not sure you know, about the validity of that vehicle at all. It didn't work for me. But that is, it's, I think it's useful to recognize that's the kind of the way our culture views uh, the religious life. But that's not what we're doing. Uh, I think it's important to know that because uh, those on the bhakti path are chanting and singing and, and getting the shakti going and the tears of bliss. And Well, that's very different from actually sitting there looking at greed, aversion and delusion and, and uh, trying to ask the right questions at the right time and just say, what is it? Why do I keep betraying myself and speaking in heedless ways? Now, that's very different from getting the shakti going. Uh, you can be there waving incense and candles and lights and, and tears of bliss and, and, and it can be wonderful. I, in fact, I used to do a little of that myself. <laughs> Get into uh, as a part of a, um, a mantra yoga school for a while and, and you get wonderfully high chanting uh, these mantras but it didn't help me address the real questions I had real questions that for whatever reason I was aware of and I was looking for something that really helped me recognize those real heart questions give a voice to them and then honor them yeah? and so that's when I found about the Buddhist path that's what it's about that if we do listen to our own hearts questions what this what is this all about why do I keep acting out of greed and aversion? Why do I get lost in these moods? Is there a way out of it? And the Buddha's teachings about cultivating the skillful means so as to be able to hear our own questions, not just listen to what other people are preaching at us about, but to go inwards and to feel for our own deep questions in the body, in the heart, in the mind, at the time when they arise, become one with them, and that's where our spiritual energy comes from. But again, I emphasize that this is a very different path from worshipping the divine or, or bhakti practice. Uh, yeah. So if we appreciate this, well then also when uh, we find that uh, going along the spiritual path, we, we find it's not so easy. Yeah? And it's, it's, we've got to let go of a lot. We've got to let go of a lot of our Ideas. Now, when we start the spiritual path, we come across perhaps the, the Buddha's teaching that encourages us to ask our own questions, equip us with the skills to develop a little samadhi and 
you can really feel good when you recognize, when you touch into that, that dimension of consciousness whereby you can just be there and, and just be aware and just watch. And you're not fighting and you're not striving and, and it's a whole different relationship with yourself and that's, that's tremendously rewarding. You get wonderful energy and enthusiasm from that and then you find there's other people like that and then like you know, playing a musical instrument with somebody who really knows how to jam, you start making beautiful music together. You've got good dumber friends and, and you read the teachers and you download from the internet and oh, this is, this is the real thing, this is the real deal and you're feeling really good. And it is really good for a while but as we progress, well, then we start to come up against some of those things that actually are the deeper causes for our struggle. And then some of the initial enthusiasm, some of the initial tricks we learned about how to make our mind peaceful and get high, well, they just don't work anymore. We got used to it and say, so what? I mean, I can get happy, but then I can get unhappy again when I don't get my own way. And so... We need to reassess or to look at our approach to spiritual life. And in the beginning, so in the beginning, we have a vision. We come across the Buddhist path, we have a vision of the way. We have an idea, we have a feeling, and, and, and we aspire to realization. But in truth, it's just an idea. Even if we've had a little mediocre samadhi and a little tranquility, and we're not quite as heedless and, and frivolous as we used to be, it's still actually not anything substantial. It might have been good in the beginning, but it's not liberation. It's nothing like liberation. And so we've got to look at it and say, well, what is my goal in practice? And so the idea we have, we have these ideas of practice in the beginning which are inspiring and sustaining, but after a while they just don't cut anymore. Even having good friends doesn't work through the job anymore. And the path can become really tedious, really tedious. But this is part of the path. And this is part of the path. This is not, please don't think that something's going wrong just because it feels like it's all going wrong. It can feel like it's all going wrong. You know, read what the teachers say. Ajahn Chah, you know, read in his teaching. He says, you're not really doing it until you, to just to be crying with despair and to be all alone and to feel there's nobody who cares about me and I've got, I don't know what to do. But you keep going. So when, when we reach these points of utter despair and frustration and disillusionment, that's not necessarily because something's going wrong. Yeah. So we need to, now we need to bolster ourselves up, equip ourselves up with other skills. Remembering what we're looking for is how to be in the midst of those who are greedy or angry without being pulled into their greed and anger. How to be our own person, how to know our own heart so well that we don't get defined by those around us. Remembering that, so that's our goal, that's what we're aiming for. And so we, we learn to actually let go of ideas about the goal. Because, you know, after a while, those ideas about the goal, actually, it's like kid stuff, really. Like telling yourself fairy stories about enlightenment and how wonderful it's going to be. That's okay in the beginning, but when it comes down to the real nitty-gritty of practice, well, it's like when you're faced with your, what looks like interminable greed or, or, or anger. You know, just, when you just hate everybody. I don't know if any of you have had that feeling. It's just like you hate everybody. You might even feel like wanting to kill. You know? Or you're afraid. You're just, just afraid. You, can't, you just can't even get up in the morning without feeling afraid. So whatever it is, 
greed, aversion, fear, sadness. All of us have got unlived life, which are the symptoms of our ignorance. All of us have got unlived life, which if we're practicing rightly, we will, we should, we must meet. And so that's not a sign that something's going wrong. It's a sign that it's time to let go of the ideas we have about practice. And that transition period, that transition period between being inspired by the vision of the goal and actually really learning how to let go and be your own person, that, that in-between period, the teachers and the teachings tell us, can be very tedious and very difficult. In other religious disciplines also you can read, and, and I think of myself, I find it helpful to, to recognize the resonance in other religious disciplines. And, and sometimes I, I've thought about what it says in the, the, New Te- the Old Testament of the Bible. It talks about the Israelites, uh, 40 years in the desert before they reached the promised land. In Egypt they were slaves. In Egypt, in the land of sensual indulgence, they were slaves. They escaped from the land of slavery, but before they could enter the promised land, they had to spend 40 years in the desert, and everybody had to die off. Everybody who knew what it was like and remembered Egypt, everybody had to die off before they could enter the promised land. It's a a useful image. Having a bad hair day, see, oh, practice is not getting me anywhere, you know. I've been practicing for four years now. (laughs) Well... You know, if we've been practicing for 40 years and we still feel like we're not getting anywhere, well, maybe there's reason to be concerned. But up until that point, well, we've got to look at our practice and say, well, where are we getting our nourishment from? In the beginning, we got our inspire, inspiration and encouragement from initial ideas, initial impressions, and the vision, the hope, the confidence, and the possibility of the path. And it was real, but it was only relative. It wasn't sustainable. And uh, so we need to find other resources. And so we, yeah, we renew our approach to practice, let go of the stories, and actually come find that actually, yeah, I can just, I'm just willing. I find actually these days, I can find I'm willing to feel my bad moods when they come up. Yeah. Things that before I spent a lot of energy trying to get rid of. So, uh, you can try and get rid of them, but is that the same thing as understanding them? Trying to get rid of them is not the same thing as letting go of them. When you let go of something you know, you have you know what they, the, the aha experience. You, say, oh, you know. And doesn't it? somebody else comes along and says, oh, you haven't let go yet. <laughs> well, it's true there may be a deeper level of letting go. That's true, but on that level, I know I've let go. And you know for yourself. Yeah. But just basically trying to get rid of something... Uh, can even delay the letting go. And so we adjust our practice until we, there, comes, there comes a willingness to bear with things. It's not a resignation, it's not a pathetic resignation, but it's more of a, a humble receptivity of ourselves, of our own hearts. So this is what I've got to deal with. This is what I've got to deal with, and this is Okay. And when we, when we reach that state of humble receptivity, there's a new level of energy comes from that. And we can get inspired again. But now we're getting inspired by something much more organic, much more authentic than a vision of the goal or because we've got nice Buddhist friends or we, we've read some nice books about Buddhism. 
or also the, uh, our practice of restraint, how we approach restraint. Well, there's many different types of restraint, but one type of restraint is where you actually make the effort to stop something arising in your mind. Like if you, you, know, if you have a you know, problem with greed, I'm talking about greed tonight, you have a problem with greed, and so you basically, whenever the, the fantasies start coming, you say, no, I am not going to think about cheesecake. You refuse to think about cheesecake, and so you come back to your meditation object, or, or you think about death. Now, death is a good, death is a very good antidote for greed. You need know, to actually meet greed in a realistic way. You know, one of the things I would recommend was to, to become conscious of death, the inevitability of death, the reality of death, the experience of death. A lot of what goes on in our society and culture and in the name of religion is an avoidance of death. Death-denying myths, as the sociologists call it. Yeah, a lot of religion is, is full of the same thing. But rather than being death-denying, what the Buddha was doing was encouraging us to actually open up to the reality of death. That's why monks uh, actually you know, have pictures of, of skeletons. Or most monasteries you go to in Thailand will have a skeleton hanging in the corner. Or traditionally in this culture also, monks would often have a, a skull sitting on their desk. Yeah. Just so we don't forget about the reality of death. Rather than forgetting about it, we want to raise it up. Because when we're lost and we're denying our fear of death, we're actually what we're doing is denying life. You know, death is yeah, a really important part of what we call life. And so what we want to do is, is to raise it up. Yeah. And if it intimidates us, well, then we go cautiously. We don't get heedless about it. Yeah, we're, we're dealing with powerful passions of the heart here. But in terms of learning to say no to greedy impulses, well, recollection on death is very good. If I was dying now, would I be worried about cheesecake? Yeah. No. Yeah. Or anger, you know. If you, you know, somebody, somebody said they didn't like you. I don't like you anymore. <laughs> and you know, well, if I was dying, would I be worried about whether somebody liked me? No. Okay. So finding these skillful means for learning to inhabit the arising of these unwholesome states of mind, like greed and aversion. So that's one form of restraint. So they, these things don't actually arise. But then there's also another level of restraint, which we, at some stage we need to investigate, whereby when we're ready, you are very careful of this, when we really feel ready, not for just some idealistic, pushy, over-striving reason, but when we really feel ready, we can actually allow greedy impulses to come into the mind. It's not the case we've got to keep trying to get rid of greed and aversion. Yeah, that's, that's not the way of understanding. That's the first step to basically to just tell these unruly passions, you know, who's running the show. It's like your dog. When you get a new dog, if you don't train it, you know, your house is not going to be fit to live in. So what do you do? You put that initial effort into training the dog. Say, no, no, that's the place to go and do your business. You know, that's not here. No, no, no. Maybe in a little whack or a, you know, something or a sharp word. So you've got to be firm. You've got to be really firm. You're saying, no, don't do that again. <laughs> well, with our wild, unruly passions, we've got to be just the same. The animal passions, they're part of this body, the animal body we've got. We're very firm. 
in the beginning, very, very firm. But we're not just animals. You know, we also have this wonderful consciousness which is able to reflect on the reality. And so the first step is saying no to these impulses. No, I am not going to follow this anger. No, I am not going to follow this greed. No, I am not going to indulge in feeling sorry for myself. Because that's what we're doing when we indulge in these moods. Basically, we're just making a mess. And we're going to be very, very firm. Now, in as much as a lot of us are rather spoilt and, and, and the affluent, self-indulgent world, you know, we've lived in, we feel, oh, I can indulge if I want to. Well, you can, but also you can live in the toilet if you want to. Yeah, we've got to see the consequences of our actions. And so that's why the Buddha was, well, he didn't mince his words. He seemed very clear. In the beginning, you've got to be willing to say no. But once you know you can say no, then you can say yes. And then another level of restraint kicks in. And this is the restraint that comes with investigation. When you feel ready, you know, actually, I can just actually let a little of this ill will come into consciousness. Now, if you start to, you stop saying no, and then up comes the fire and it fills your head and you're raging with anger again, saying, no, no, too soon, too early. Go and chop some wood or, you know, take a cold shower. Do something, basically, to cool the, the passions down and go back to your basic restraint level, saying no in a kindly way. Maybe you weren't saying no in a kindly way. Like, you know, when you train a dog if you or a horse, you've got to be very firm with a horse. But if you break a horse in with aggression, with resentment, you can never trust the horse. If you train a horse with respect for the passion, the power of that being, then once the horse is trained, you've got a very reliable relationship with the horse. The attitude we bring to the training is very important. So saying no to ourselves, greedy impulses, angry impulses, we don't just say no brutally. You know, we've got to say, we've actually got to say no with kindness. You know, this being is suffering. This is bad. Being possessed with anger and, and, and lust and fear is horrible. So we're saying no, but with love, with respect, as a parent would with a child. So we have reached the point where we have sufficient strength of sati, strength of awareness, strength of restraint, and we start to allow these things to come into consciousness, and then they don't take us over. It's not, we don't feel overwhelmed by them. And we can investigate. All oh, right. We're not grasping at it, we're just watching it, allowing it to, to come into consciousness. All oh, right. And that's where insight comes from. So it's not just restraint. Initial restraint at the first level is just saying no, but then we have the restraint of investigation. So when we find that as we progress on the spiritual path, uh, we have the goal, which in the beginning is enlightenment, it's all wonderful, but then we revisit our idea of the goal because it doesn't seem to be making us so inspired anymore, and so we recognize, no, actually I've got to be with this, the greed and the aversion of my life as I've got and we find a new level of energy, and we discover actually there are other skills that we can cultivate. You know, really working on restraint and working on gratitude. Likewise, if it's greed, since we're talking about greed this evening, to 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 uh, raise that up. You know, to raise that up. You know, just to say the word. You know, and they'll... People often don't know how to contemplate. They know how to concentrate. Concentrate on the breath or concentrate on thoughts of loving kindness or concentrate on death. 
concentrate on the body, walking meditation. But to contemplate is different. There is an element of concentration, obviously, but we're holding something lightly because we're interested in it. And so we say, well, what is this thing with gratitude? The Buddha and all the great leaders of the spiritual traditions and, 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 and all the decent people that we know show gratitude, feel gratitude, manifest gratitude. So what is this thing with gratitude? Do I feel gratitude? Well, you know, sometimes you might find there are two periods of your life where you actually just don't feel grateful for anything. You're just so caught in bitterness and resentment and feeling hard done by. And We're so alienated from our true hearts, we, we so don't know who we are, we're so remote from ourselves that we feel like we're lacking everything. We may be in good health, we may be intelligent, we may be loved, we may be surrounded by a good fortune, but the feeling is, I don't have enough. I need more. And of course the consumer society just loves us to have that, that view. You do need more. You need what I've got. You can come and pay for it. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, we, we need to look at that story. Unless we investigate that feeling of I need more, that aching in the gut, which is there's something missing. You know, what is it that's not there? I mean, I've got enough. I've had eaten today and I've got nice friends and they send me emails. And What is it that's missing? So. And gratitude, you know, why don't I feel grateful? Well, you know, sit back, not being too pushy about answering, just hold the question. Sit there, breathing, straight back, relaxed shoulders. No judgment of anything that's happening, just this moment. And then ask the question, what is it with gratitude? What is it in? What is this gratefulness? What is this that the spiritual disciplines encourage and see where our inquiry takes us see if if that question doesn't trigger something that's a little bit warm in our hearts and then if it doesn't automatically when you just start thinking well what should i feel grateful for well actually actually my parents were pretty good people really i mean you look at all the you know the damaged really truly damaged people around the planet who are reproducing and, and, you know, well, if I'd been born in that situation, well, actually, I'm grateful for this. And my education, well, it wasn't that great, but it was better than what a lot of people have. And, and the food, I mean, the food, actually, the food is amazing. And oh, there's a lot. And you start to just kindle this fire of gratitude. And if we do that, if we kindle the fire of gratitude, well, then you might recognize that this really connects with the sense of, I want more which is what greed is about, uh, to see how these two go together. So I'm not interested in answering your questions. I, I, I'm sure you have your own deep, uh, real questions. And uh, my contemplations this evening on this verse in the Dhammapada are, are uh, merely hints or encouragements for you to feel for what matters to you, whether it's greed. Yeah. Well, in the midst of those who are greedy, to be free from greed is happiness indeed, or whether it's anger. Well, in the midst of those who are angry, to dwell free from anger is happiness indeed. To contemplate these as an inspiration, as an encouragement in your practice. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> Sadhu.